This is Beyond the Bell Tower, where an elite group of North Carolina State University students give us a behind-the-scenes look at their steps to success in attaining even the loftiest goals. These students, who are in the top 10% in the country, are active in student support services at NC State. These students are low-income and first-generation NC State students. Nationally, this population has a 10% graduation rate. NC State students have a graduation rate over 90% and go on to become doctors, dentists, accountants, engineers. They work at Google, Apple, and the NCAA. Some have even earned PhDs at Ivy League colleges. These students go well beyond the bell tower to attain their imminent goals. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Wright, your host of Beyond the Bell Tower, and welcome back to season six episode nine and we're excited we're back in person today with none other than bj durham who is a doctoral student here at nc state in his fifth year and he's a therapist so bj let's go ahead and get started by telling us a little bit about yourself yes sir thank you for having me uh 28 year old young man from maryland mm -hmm. love the dmv from columbia maryland currently trying to finish up a dissertation at nc state university so that i can go out into the world and make this a better place all right sounds Quite the plan. That's the, that's the goal. That's the goal. We'll see <laughs> yeah. if it happens or not. Yeah. So um, let's tell us, how did you get to NC State? Yeah. So I uh, went to a small school out in Pennsylvania for my undergrad, studied in psychology and a minor in sociology, stayed there to get my master's in clinical mental health counseling. The only reason I even heard about the school was because of basketball, got mm -hmm. recruited to play ball. So played ball for the four years of undergrad, then stayed there to get my master's. And I knew as a kid, actually, I wanted to always live in North Carolina. I used to come down here for the CIAA basketball tournament since I was like three years old. And I was like, one day I'm going to somehow find a way to live in North Carolina. So mm -hmm. I only applied to UNC Charlotte and North Carolina State University. Once I got into accepted into North Carolina State University, it was, it was a wrap. Decided to go. And I've been a Wolfpack member since 2018. All right. And how do you like it so far? Oh, I love it. I feel like my experience here has been amazing. I don't want to change anything that's happened to me over the last mm -hmm. five years. I feel like I've made some new fans, or not, excuse me, <laughs> definitely not new fans. Made some new family, made uh -huh. some new friends, and I think just everything um, that I've gotten to kind of contribute and be a part of it in this community for the last five years has been amazing. Okay. So y'all, I'm really excited for this episode because he's studying exactly what, I, what I'm studying right now. You know, I'm a psych major, sociology minor, and I'm also interested in the clinical mental health counseling realm as well. So we're excited to have you and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, is there a specific part of your childhood that you know sparked your interest in mental health? Maybe a person a or event yeah. or anything like that? Uh, it has to be my mom. So she was a social worker. She worked in the school system, the Baltimore County Public School System for a while, ever since I can remember. So I remember like hearing her stories coming back home and being like, man, I just got to work with this young kid or this young person and I got to help them see something different about themselves that they had never seen. And so when I was kind of growing up and seeing this consistently every day, I was like, man, how do I get to this point where I can help people reach this self-actualization or reach this potential that they did not know they had? And then I discovered psychology, then I discovered this clinical mental health field of like, your job is to help people better themselves. And why mm -hmm. would you not want to do that? Okay. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, you at Waynesburg University, your college experience. What was that like for you? And how um, did you see psychology playing a role in pretty much your everyday experience as an athlete? Yeah, so being at Waynesburg was definitely an adjustment coming from Maryland. I went from 
uh, about 20 minutes outside of Baltimore to mm -hmm. like, I felt like the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. where the closest city was Pittsburgh. And that was about an hour away. So mm -hmm. I went to this very rural town in the mountains. It was so much colder than at home and I do not do the cold at all. So that mm -hmm. in itself was an adjustment. But then going to this small school of, I think, maybe about 1600 undergraduate students wow. was almost mm -hmm. the same size as my high school. So it was yeah. like that adjustment wasn't too different. It was just the fact that now I'm away from home, away from family, living on my own, playing a collegiate sport, which is its own type of adjustment. Mm -hmm. So all of it was definitely a transition in itself. But I think once I understood what my role was as a student, once I understood what my role was as an athlete, once I was able to find my support people, once I was able to find my teammates and being able to kind of find my niche, I was good to go. But that transition definitely was a lot longer than I wanted it to be. That first semester was a struggle. Okay, so let's talk about that transition a little bit, specifically within athletics. Mm -hmm. You know, um, what were some of the challenges that you're talking about that, you know, you faced transitioning from being uh, a high school athlete to being a college athlete? Yeah, I think one of the biggest transition pieces for me and what the biggest challenge was, and I think a lot of athletes go through this going from high school to college, was everybody is just as good as you are, if not better, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when you get to the collegiate level, you were probably one of the best you know, people on your team in high school, definitely probably one of the best in Little League, Pop mm -hmm. One or whatever sport you might play. But then when you get to college, everybody's just as fast, everybody's just as strong, if not stronger, mm -hmm. in my case, because I was a little smaller. Um, but it was really the speed of the game was also an adjustment. And then on top of the actual adjusting of in-game and, you know, adjusting to the game of basketball on the college level, it was the transition of the structure that comes with that on a college level. So like, you know, in high school, you have your classes, you might lift before practicing, you got practicing, you get to go home. Well, college, yeah, you have your classes, but you only have like two or three a day. And then right. you got possibly two practices a day. You got film, you got weights, you got to eat at a certain time, and you still have all this homework mm -hmm. and all this other things that you want to do. And on top of that, you still want to be, you know, an 18, 19-year-old kid. It's a full-time job. And exactly have a social life. So you're still mm -hmm. trying to find times to hang out with friends that are not on the team. And, mm -hmm. like, you, you just kind of have to really figure out what's structure and what's schedule gets you to be where you want to be. And that, like I said, it took more than a while for me to adjust. But once you get right. there, you get in your space. Oh, yeah. Right. So how was that for you? Like you spend so much time with your teammates and your coaches. You guys have workouts, yeah. your games, your practices pretty much twice a day. You know, what is it like making those connections outside of just those guys in the locker room with the rest of the student body? Yeah. So it's actually difficult. The thing that was actually one of my best pieces of advice that I'd give somebody that I actually did uh, going into college was I said I didn't want a room with somebody that was on my team. I wanted to have some sort of connection to somebody that had nothing to do yeah. with basketball. Yeah. Not a coach, not a support staff member, not an athletic trainer, not a teammate. I wanted somebody that had nothing to do with sports, and they honestly could care less about sports. So mm -hmm. that helped me because they had friends that were outside of the sports realm, mm -hmm. outside of the sports circle. And so when I'd go hang out with him and his friends, they'd be like, oh, wow, we don't really hang out with athletes because you all yeah. usually only hang out with each other. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm trying to not be that athlete. I'm trying to make sure that that's not something that happens for the rest of the time as athletes, you know, continue to go to college. Okay, cool, cool. So can you describe how your identity, you know, as an mm -hmm. athlete developed over time, over your four years at Waynesburg? How did, how did yeah. that, um, you show growth or you adjust to becoming a little bit more confident in your role as a player? Yeah, so I think uh, as anybody going to a new thing, your identity is there, but you don't know 
at what level do you mm -hmm. have that identity or what identity salience do you have with that specific topic or with that specific team or whatever that thing is that you're kind of doing. So for me, freshman year, I was like, all right, I'm a basketball player and I am solely a basketball player, right? Mm -hmm. I think I went into it with this very high athletic identity. And then as time went on, I realized I'm not going to the league. Mm -hmm. I have to find something to do sustainable after my career's over. So what does that look like? So as you know, years went on, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, I was able to find who I was outside of basketball. And I think a lot of times for some people, it could be the opposite where they come in and it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm a college student here. And then as time goes on, you become, oh, I'm a college athlete here that also happens to be a student. But for me, it was like, oh, I'm an athlete here. And then it was like, wait a minute, I'm a student first, but I'm also an athlete. So the transition was interesting because I was able to lean on my father, who was also a college athlete at one point, and my uncle who was a college athlete, and older cousins that were college athletes to kind of ask them, what was it like when y'all went to college? And, you know, if you had to do it again, or if you could give somebody a piece of advice, what would that be? And they were all like, just know these are going to be the greatest four years of your life, but also it's only four years of your life, right? There's yeah. so much more beyond this. And so plan for the life ahead. Yeah. So um, in the research that you've done, and we'll get mm -hmm. into this a little bit later, and then also with, you know, the athletes that you work with now, do you find that a lot of athletes today are having a hard time with that transition, you know, realizing that, you know, basketball, football, whatever the sport may be, realizing that it doesn't last forever. And yeah. for some of them, sooner than others, they're going to have to, you know, find something else to be passionate about and work towards. Do you think a lot of athletes are having a hard time realizing that today? Now, I think a whole lot of athletes are having a hard time realizing that for, for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, you can go in terms of, in terms of reasons, you can say, social media, right? When you mm -hmm. go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, mm -hmm. you see the glory that all these athletes get. And you're right. like, who doesn't want to have Especially that glory? Especially today. Especially today, yeah. right? Because everything 24-7 is always going to be posted somewhere. Yeah. Somebody's always recording something, right? So you always have to be careful in that, the, that capacity or that context. But when you think of just thinking about people outside of what they are in just one capacity or one role, I think athletes have it the hardest, really. And I'm sure there's other, I think military is also up there with you know, having a hard time having that identity, but also balancing that with other forms of roles that you have throughout your entire life. So, um, but for athletes, like specifically, one, you have this like social um, continuation or this like social pressure coming from a lot of individuals that they see you as this athlete. Mm -hmm. If somebody at NC State is walking around campus and they have the NC State gear on. That red bag. It, as soon as you <laughs> see the red bag, you yeah. know, oh, that's an athlete, right? Yeah. And if it's one of our, you know, premier athletes, or if it's somebody mm -hmm. that's probably a bit more well-known, mm -hmm. we know who they are. And we ask, yo, great game the other day, mm -hmm. or when's the next game, or how are y'all mm -hmm. doing with traveling, or whatever it might mm -hmm. be. We don't ask them, like, how the class is going. That's not the yeah. first question that comes out of our, our mouth, and that's not the right. first thing that we think of. The first thing is, yo, how is something evolved around sports, right? We're thinking of them only in the sports realm and not as student not as a son or a daughter, not as something else beyond the athletic piece. So I think that's another piece why it's so hard for a lot of athletes to not have so much more exposure to things outside of mm -hmm. sports, right? And then also I think just the structure of what a college athlete is, even for high school athletes now too, right? Mm -hmm. You are constantly, constantly, constantly doing something revolved around sports, whether you're yeah. eating a specific thing for a specific reason, you're working out for a specific reason, you're in study hall for a specific reason, like the class in which you took is at a specific time because you have practice at a specific time. So you mm -hmm. have to take this class. Like 
a lot of the decisions they make are around that identity of being an athlete. So once again, it's kind of enforced on them like, is this where all my worth is? Is this where my self-value comes from? And it's not by any means, but right. it really seems like that when you look at it from you know, a lot of different views. Right. And so, you know, me being a fan, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of sports. I, I mm -hmm. watch a lot of sports, but um, I have no idea what it's like, you know, in the locker room, behind the scenes, just the struggles and the pressures of being an athlete. Yeah. So with your experience, you know, playing on the collegiate level, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of those pressures that you may have as an athlete, whether they're social, like you kind of just mentioned, mm -hmm. or like performance on the, the court or the yeah. field, what, whatever they may be? So I think there's a whole lot that goes into the pressure of what it means to be an athlete. Um, I think, honestly, it probably starts off at the home, like, right, your parents. A lot of times parents don't always want to push their kid to make them do something, mm -hmm. but inadvertently they're doing that because... Yeah they found something that their child is good at, so why not make your child Pursue do the it. thing that they're good at, right? Yeah. And so when you do that, the child thinks, maybe this is the only thing I can do to get validation from people that I truly love and that I want validation from. So that can be one thing too, coaches, right? Like coaches are there to help young people become ready for the real world outside of sports, and I think they do a great job with that, but they also have a job to keep, right? They have mm -hmm. a family to feed themselves, and they need to win, and in order to win, you need to get all those people in your locker yep. room to perform at the highest level that you can get them to perform at and that they can perform at. And so to do so, you put pressure on them without even wanting to put pressure on them. It's just a part of what sports is, right? It's, this competitive nature allows us to step up to the plate and do things that we didn't know were possible, which is the beauty of what sports is, but it's also sometimes the, the dark room that nobody talks about that sports has. So when you think of the pressures from parents, coaches, then you have the pressures just from teammates in general, right? Like, those are your best friends. Those are going to be your brothers for life, your sisters for life, your people for life. But that doesn't come with, you know, its own sort of turmoil. We've all fought our brother. We've all fought our sister. Mm -hmm. We've all gone into arguments with our parents, whether it lasted for two seconds because they said something. And then we were like, all right, you're right. Or, you know, we thought we could get away with something when we couldn't. We're going to get into arguments with people we love. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that adds a little bit of a strain to a relationship. So... I think there's a lot of things that happen in the locker room that people don't see outside of the locker room, which right. is probably a good thing. You want to always do the best and you can to keep it within the team. Yeah. And things happen, right? Team dynamics shift, team dynamics change, whether that's a new uh, transfer student coming in, new coaches coming in, new staff member coming in, whatever it yeah, might absolutely. look like, things happen, things change, but it's the best intentions as a teammate or as an athlete to make sure like at the end of the day, we're a family. Like I got your back, you got my back. Mm -hmm. And it's never me against you. It always should be us against them, right? right? Us against whoever we're playing, us against whatever outside of this locker room. That means the media, that means sometimes your family, whatever it is. It's always us against them. And once you have that mindset, once you kind of understand that's what you want to have, it makes it a little easier, but it yeah. still doesn't come without any pressure. It doesn't come right. without any turmoil that happens that people don't see behind the yeah. scenes. And I think the interesting thing about, you know, and within sports is how they're so popular. What you just mentioned is really effective on all levels, not not mm -hmm. just the collegiate or the professional. Yeah. But I remember in high school, we had those same instances too, feeling that pressure and, you know, problems within team and, and things like that. So um, it's refreshing to hear you mention those things. If you can already tell, we're, we're here to talk about, <laughs> you know, uh, specifically mental health and, and counseling within athletes. Um, BJ, he is a therapist and um, a counselor, and he works specifically with the population of athletes, um, a good amount of his time at least. And so with you as a doctoral candidate, um, mm -hmm. let's talk a, a little bit about some of your research. Mm -hmm. um, 
What sparked your interest in athlete identity transition specifically? And what yeah. does that phrase really mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would split that phrase up into two things, right? For me, it'd be one is athletic identity, right? Mm -hmm. So athletic identity is what we kind of spoke about already, this athlete or the sports person, mm -hmm. right? Seeing themselves in this specific role and to what level do they see themselves in that role? Um, there's something called the Athletic Identity Measurement Scale. Okay. Um, and it's a 10, I believe, question, um, like a 10 question questionnaire where each thing that it asks has something to do with your identity within athletics, right? Um, mm. And I think an example of a question could be, to what extent do you feel like all your time is given towards a specific sport? And you would answer between one and seven, seven being like all the way at the top, zero being like, I don't do anything with sports at all, right? Okay. And so a lot of times when we utilize measurement skills like this, we're able to see and like actually analyze how do these athletes see themselves? Are they really looking at themselves in this capacity of like, I am an athlete and that's all I am? Or is it like, I have other identities and I have mm -hmm. things that I do and that I belong to outside of sports. So that would be the first thing. And then in peace, in terms of the like athletic transition or what I like to call it, the career athletic retirement piece, Mm -hmm. is when your athletic career is kind of coming to an end, right? And that doesn't mean you can't go to the YMCA play pickup. Right. Doesn't mean if you're a golfer, you can do that for the rest of your life, right? But yeah. where are you done playing at a very high level where things are at stake to a certain yeah. degree, right? And so the reason I kind of got into this research was, one, I went through the transition myself, right? I threw it like through and through. I think probably in like sixth grade, seventh grade, I was like, yo, I have a chance of making it to the league. I'm good. I'm better than everybody else around me, like, this is gonna happen. And then eighth grade hit, I didn't grow anymore. Mm -hmm. And then I remember <laughs> playing against this team and like, I literally remember getting trapped in the corner and the only thing I could do was throw the pass in between this dude's legs. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, oh my God, he's so good. And I was like, this man is 20 times better than me playing defense on me and that's the only option I had. I'm not going to the league. This is, that was like my aha moment of like, mm -hmm. it's not happening. So it came earlier for you then? It came very early. It came like eighth grade when I was like, yeah, I'm definitely not going to the league. Okay. I'm 5'10". Mm -hmm. Not too many 5'10 guys in the NBA right now. Like, you could have a late growth spurt. Yeah, there, I get well, you. I thought the growth yeah, was yeah, going to yeah. happen in college, actually. Yeah. And I was like, it yeah. didn't happen. So I was like, this is what it is. Yeah. So once I kind of was able to kind of have that eye-opening moment in eighth grade, I was like, all right, so how do I stay around sports, though, for a very long time? And then as I got older, I realized there's this avenue of like this sports psychology, sports counseling piece that not too many people were in at the time. Exactly. And then having my mom being in social work and kind of being in that mental health field helped. And then my dad, who loves basketball through and through, has been a basketball coach since I was a young kid. Mm -hmm. I was like, how can I combine these two things that I really, really enjoyed doing? I love going to basketball games, love watching football, love playing lacrosse in high school. Like, mm -hmm. I love sports, right? So how do I stay around this environment? Because sports in itself is its own culture, right? How do I stay around this culture? but also bring in this well-being, this holistic human being um, perspective into everyday life for these athletes. So that's why I was like, man, this athlete transition thing might be my go-to. And then as I got older um, and then went through the transition, you know, graduating college and seeing how I went through it differently than how my teammates went through it, I was like, huh, this might be a piece for me, right? So some teammates go into coaching and have amazing careers in the coaching mm -hmm. realm athletic directors, right. things like that, right? And then there's others that are like, I never want to touch a basketball again. Mm -hmm. I'm done with it. I don't want to watch it. I don't want to see one. 
I'm going to go into the corporate field and never talk about basketball again and never act like I even played college basketball, right? Mm. So everybody transitions differently. But for me, I was like, why is that? I'm very interested to see why do people mm. transition that way and what makes people tick when that transition hits. Yeah. And I think that's, that's awesome that you're finding a way to stay within your passion, but allowing um, athletes to still benefit from what you do, you mm. know, with the counseling, with the therapy. Yeah. Because we all know it's needed, right? We see it pretty much all the time on social media with athletes. They're coming out now more yeah. saying, you know, their need of mental health counseling and service. their mental health is actually playing a role in their performance. And so it's good to have you on and, and talking about that importance. Um, and so being both a scholar and a counselor, mm -hmm. right, what are some ways that you've discovered so far, you know, to help athletes in this transition from being an athlete to becoming a professional, you yeah. know, in any field? Yeah, so I think the one thing that I've seen, I mean, research has shown a little bit that's kind of out there, is really starting early, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing it up to middle school athletes, high school athletes, and you never want to kill somebody's dream. That's the Absolutely. one thing I think people do very well is like, oh, you're not going to the league. Like, you could probably ask eight out of ten professional athletes, and they've at least heard it yeah. five to ten times of someone saying, you're not going to make it to the league. Yeah. You're not Somebody the has to, yeah. Somebody has to get to yeah. the league somehow, right? Yeah. We have to watch somebody on yeah. Sundays yeah. that has amazing talent and is a, an amazing person, right? But yeah. they've probably heard that countless times rather than them saying, all right, that's cool. That's a great goal to have. Mm -hmm. But also, you can't play sports forever, right? A hundred percent of sports careers end mm -hmm. when you are playing. Like, nobody has ever played all the way through their entire life, right? Mm -hmm. Tom Brady tried. He's mm -hmm. finally done. LeBron is trying at the moment. I hope he yeah. continues for a while, but he's starting to finally slow down. So after a while, you can't play sports your entire life. So when you kind of frame it in a way that they can digest a lot easier, rather than them knowing that you are just trying to kill their dream, you're coming mm -hmm. from a, a space of like, yo, I care for you. But I'm also trying to look out for you in the future. And I want to make sure that you're successful in whatever you decide to do. Yeah while you are chasing your dream to do this. And then you let them know that there's so many um, ways for them to stay around the sports world, right? Because a lot of times when they ask, or when you ask them, hey, what do you want to do when you get over? I don't know, I want to be a professional athlete. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. What are some other things that you want to do? I don't know, I want to be around sports. And the only two things they probably would say is I can go into coaching or yeah. I can maybe be an athletic trainer. Yeah. And those two professions are amazing and yeah. as needed as ever. But there are also so many other professions within the sports realm that you can do, whether that's sports communication, sports marketing, whether that's a sports uh, learning specialist, whether that's somebody in the academic team, someone on the mental health team. Like, it's just so many different options that we have now that I don't think people really know about. So the best thing is to continue to get the word out about all these professions that we have yeah. within the sports world. Yeah, and so for someone who's interested in counseling within mm -hmm. athletics, how would you suggest, you know, forging those relationships with the other sides of, you know, sports professions? How would you say you handle, you know, you know, having conversations with people within sport management and things like that? And how does that relate to the sports psychology side of things? Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, like I said earlier, I think sports is a culture, right? So we're mm -hmm. all a part of this one culture and we're all trying to make it the best that it can be. And we all have a passion for it. I think that's probably the easiest thing is to find somebody's passion and relate to that passion. And then you have a connection. Yeah. Like when you connect with somebody's passion, it's the easiest thing to hold a conversation. It's the easiest thing to know where their head's at or where their heart is. So for me, it's realizing if I'm talking to somebody that's in sports marketing that probably doesn't know much about what I do right. as a sports counselor, but they do know what it feels like for somebody to have a game-winning shot. 
Yeah. So maybe we discuss, well, guess how many times we practice in session or guess how many times before practice we had him do that exact same shot mm-hmm. so that he can use it for his mental imagery later on, right? So mm-hmm. these little tools and they're like, wow, that makes so much sense, right? To practice something that you preach and then they do it and, you know, when it comes time for the game, it's like, oh, that makes sense. I see that. I can easily relate to that ability. And they probably have their own examples of where they're like, wow, I actually use some form of sports psychology technique in my profession, or I use this piece from mental health that I learned from my counselor, my therapist, or whatever it might be. So it's a lot easier once you find that passion and once you share that passion. Okay. So getting back on the um, the identity piece, you mm-hmm. know, how can something like identity be viewed not only um, on a social sense uh, from a group perspective, but also in an individual perspective? And how do they kind of come together with that both group and individual aspect of identity? Yeah, that's a good question. So one answer could be there's a lot of theories out there by mm-hmm. a lot of people that have this idea of what group identity looks like and mm-hmm. then where your identity as a person by yourself mm-hmm. kind of goes within that group identity. Um, I also think you have to really think about what that group is, right? Or what the goal of that group is, right? Because a lot of times when we're in a group, usually we have the same goal, mm-hmm. right? Like right now, me and you are having this conversation and our goal is to make great content for people to listen to mm-hmm. and then also hope that we're helping somebody out there that's listening, Yeah. right? The group uh, of a team, right? The team dynamic, their goal is to win games. Mm-hmm. Sometimes their goal is to build family members. Sometimes their goal is to have somebody to keep them accountable, whatever that goal is. So. You have to look at the identity piece within a group and figure out what is the identity of the group, but then not let that group identity or not let the identity of the group kind of play into what your identity is as an individual. Right. Right. Because who are you, who you are should always be the same person when you go into different spaces. If you're always trying to change who you are yeah. to fit into the space that you're in completely, it's probably not where you belong. It's probably not where you want to be. But if you're in a space where it's like, hey, listen, I am BJ Durham and I show up authentically in every space that I'm, the same conversation I'm having with you right now is the same conversation I have when I guest lecture in a class or mm-hmm. when I get to teach courses one day or when I'm having a session with you know, one of my clients, whether that's an athlete, whether that's a musician, mm-hmm. whether that's somebody that's just struggling with the transition of moving from Colorado to Nebraska, whatever it might yeah. be, right? But you're just trying to have different type of nuances to know who you are as an individual so that your identity does not have to be deterred or does not get changed or shifted just because you're within you know a specific group or a specific dynamic so to answer your question really i would say just know who you are as an individual and your identity probably does belong to that group in some capacity Mm -hmm. right as an athlete you are to a certain degree that's what you do exactly you are going to be caught up in being an athlete and that is perfectly fine Mm -hmm. and that is the reason that you're a part of that group, but don't let that identity within that group be so strong that when you go to another group, they only see you as an athlete and you only see yourself as an athlete and you feel like you can't even give your authentic self to that other group. Mm -hmm. And so before we leave the research world a little Mm -hmm. bit, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the stigma, Mm -hmm. you know, the stigma behind mental health counseling and specifically within athletes. Um, Currently, you know, it, it seems unpopular for people to come out and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, yeah. I need help, right? Because we see all these professional athletes, we see these contracts that they're signing, <laughs> all this money they're making, shoe deals, all of it. Yeah. But we don't realize that there's still a human being behind that and they struggle with some of the same stuff that we as normal people would. 
And so how would you say your current research or how it could contribute to that current stigma um, surrounding the need for counseling among athletes? Yeah, I think the one thing it does is shows people that they're not alone, right? You're mm -hmm. not the only athlete going through that transition from high school to college. You're not that only mm -hmm. athlete going from that transition from college into the workforce. You're not the only athlete that feels like they're having a bad year or in a shooting slump or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. So I think one, it just kind of normalizes it and kind of just puts exposure on this idea that a lot of people are having the same thing that you are having right now. Yeah. And I think, and I'm grateful for professional athletes like Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, yeah. that are more than happy to come out of their own, um, their own status, their own mm -hmm. place at a very high level to say, I struggle with mental health. And, and they talk about it, yeah. This is how it helped me. These are the resources that I had. These are the resources that I was able to find. And now they are creating their own resources for right. not only professional athletes, but athletes at every level. So I think the stigma is starting to really diminish. And I think the best part about it is I think the younger generation understands the importance of mental health, right? Mm -hmm. I think it was so stigmatized for a while. Nobody talked about it, yeah. but the younger generation doesn't care. They're, they're yeah. open to talking about it and they're willing to have those difficult conversations. And now I think it's us as a profession within the mental health profession and other professions to kind of own up to be like, all right, they're ready to have these conversations. How do we have these conversations and how do we make sure that they get something out of them? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely thankful for those athletes too because they're finding a way not just to mention their own struggles, but to just come and talk about it in general. Yeah. You hear them on podcasts and television and things like that literally saying what's going on with them. And I think it's bringing an awareness to mental health, what mental health is and you know what it's like to battle those things. And more and more people are realizing, hey, I struggle with this too. And this guy just said it's okay to admit it. Exactly. And find that help. So I think that's exactly. a really, really good thing. Isolating yourself is one of the, the most detrimental things you can do, right? Mm -hmm. So whether that's isolating yourself from a group that you're supposed to be a part of, or that's just in general, you're isolating yourself from everybody else, right? So the, the ability for people to just hear somebody else going through something similar to them is so freeing. Even if you, know, you don't go get that resource right then and there, mm -hmm. you at least know there's somebody that has found that resource before you and mm -hmm. that resource is still out there. Absolutely. So now let's get into a little bit about you know, what you do. All right. mm -hmm. Could you talk about the work you do outside of you know, being a student at NC State um, and who do you work with? Yeah, so I am currently employed at a private practice up in New Jersey called Inspire Wellness. Mm -hmm. uh, they are a well, I can't even say small private practice because they have a decent amount of uh, clients and people that work there. But uh, they pretty much see people around the New York, New Jersey area. And the way I got connected was because I had a high school coach who connected me with one of his former best friends in high school. And he connected me to the sports psychologist for the Brooklyn Nets. And so mm -hmm. kind of talking about networking and things that, you know, kind of just putting myself out there. I was like, hey, let me, am I able to contact this individual? And they're like, yeah, of course, go for it. So I contacted him, we had a great conversation for like an hour and a half. I had let him know what I was doing, what I was interested in. I was like, also, I kind of need an internship in this upcoming semester, is there any way I'd be able to work under you in any capacity or kind of work with you? And he was like, actually, I think we could have you work with my, um, my private practice. And then through there, you can help me do things with the Nets and also just kind of work in this sports psychology, sports performance, you know, career mm -hmm. or um, opportunity and see where it takes you and I was like that would be amazing so been there since I believe 2020 I literally had this plan and intention of moving up to New Jersey for mm -hmm. a whole semester being up there the way I had like taken all my classes was to make sure 
that I could go wherever I wanted to go for my internship. And then this thing called COVID hit. Yeah. And I was like, dang, I guess I got to do this internship from my bedroom, even though all my stuff I'm going to be a part of is, you know, in New York, in New Jersey. But it still was a fantastic opportunity working with him, learning all the ins and outs of what it means to be a sports psychologist at the highest level was just very interesting to watch. He had to travel with the team. He had to make videos every so often with the team. Um, But then for me, being the intern, kind of just being there, helping him with ideas, um, creating handouts, and then also being able to work with local universities within the SUNY system in New York, but also Mm -hmm. working with uh, local high school athletes in Jersey, local collegiate athletes in Jersey, and just kind of honing in my skills of being a therapist for athletes and kind of seeing all different levels and kind of comparing it. And I think it was it was a great opportunity. So I'm actually yeah. still employed there working. And I have a blast. And then I also work at a, um, a local gym in Raleigh called Current Wellness, where it's mm-hmm. a half fitness studio, but half like office space, inclusive space that has therapists, that has massage therapists, physical therapists, Reiki therapists, dietitians, registered nutritions. It has everything. And the idea of it is to make sure you kind of have a one-stop shop for your holistic yeah. well-being and for you, who you are as an individual. And we love any and everybody, right? We kind of utilize this model called health at every size, and we want everybody to be healthy. And I think there's a stigma around what you're supposed to look like to be considered healthy. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of trying to kind of destigmatize that and just say, hey, come as you are. So with those two roles outside of, you know, being a student, kind of lets me truly hone in on what my my professional development and what my professional identity kind of looks like moving forward. That sounds amazing and like a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, with the gym that you work at in Raleigh, that's a great idea. You know, it's having fantastic. the physical and the emotional and the physical and the mental aspect all in one spot. Yeah. I think that's great. I, um, I always find it funny listening to people, you know, talk about what COVID ruined for them or, know. you know, the role that it played. And it always seems to come at the most inconvenient time yeah. It's somebody's path. It's hilarious to just listen to, but um, think about also how far we've come since then. So um, what makes you most excited about the work that you do? I think what makes me most excited is the fact that sports itself is exciting, right? Like March Madness just concluded mm-hmm. both, you know, the men's and the women's tournament. And I had a blast watching all the games mm-hmm. I was able to watch. There's nothing more exciting than seeing, you know, college athletes or college students or really just college athletes in general do something that they love Mm -hmm. but be put on a global scale to do it right to be put on a huge stage to show the world all the hard work that they've been doing all the sacrifice that they've been doing all the grit and perseverance that they have done that none of us get to see but we got to finally kind of see a little bit of the finishing product so for me what makes me excited about continuing in this profession and continuing in this role is seeing people do what they love. Like, who doesn't want to see somebody thrive at something that they want to thrive at? It's different when you thrive at something that you really could care less about. Yeah. But when you are putting in the work to thrive at it and you thrive at it, that feeling. it's the best feeling. And then the best feeling is to see somebody do that, that you had just the wow. smallest little help to kind of get them there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, in general, what would you say is the hardest part about being a PhD student? Oof. How much time do we have for that question? <laughs> in general, the hardest part about being a PhD student is, yeah. or the most, yeah, the most challenging part about being a PhD student, I probably would say is the fact that you have all these ideas 
and when you're in class, a professor says something and it strikes up 10 different ideas in your head, mm. but your time does not have the ability to even explore seven of those ideas, mm. right? So it's not even this idea of like, yeah, the work is hard, the time that it takes is hard, but I think the most challenging thing for me is like coming from class and talking with peers and talking with classmates and my cohort members being like, oh my gosh, we have all these amazing ideas, let's act on them. And then us realizing, wait, we have four papers due next week. Oh, yeah. We can't act on any of these ideas because we have wow. to, you know, focus on school at hand right now. So I think the hardest thing is having to delay all these amazing ideas that get transpired and get like brought up in the middle of class and all these catalyst moments. But you can't really do anything. You can't really act on it right then and then. You have to kind of wait that four or five years that it takes you to finish. And then you go back to it and then you kind of are a little cloudy in what exactly the idea was or how you thought it was going to go. So for me, that's been the most challenging. So how do you do that? How do you, you know, manage that coursework, all the papers that you have to write and the assignments and the, the research that you're doing yeah. while working at the same time? Yeah, the best answer I could give is probably scheduling everything you possibly can, even down to, hey, I need to eat. Hey, I need wow. to read, right? So I'd say on average, we get about five to six articles per class per week, right? And you have about three or four classes in a week. So you're getting a decent amount of articles to read. You learn how to, yeah, you learn how to skim very, very well. You learn how to speed read with an educational lens. You learn how to go to the intro and the conclusion discussion. Um, So one, scheduling is probably the best piece of advice that I got from somebody, but also always remembering why you're doing it because there's going to be times where you want to quit there's going to be times where you want to give up but once you remember like oh i'm doing this to better myself i'm doing this to better my family i'm doing this to better my profession i'm doing this to change the world in some capacity that i feel like i have a space in then you're like all right i can do this i can lose an hour and a half two hours of sleep in order to finish this because Mm -hmm. i want to put in the, the amount of effort that's due for this and I believe this professor is setting me up for success in the real okay. world. Cool, cool. And then what would you say are some of the most challenging things about being a counselor? Oh, I think one of the most challenging things about being a counselor is that you can't help everybody. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something I try and tell people that are going into the counseling world because a lot of times people say, I want to be a counselor because I want to help. Or I chose to be a counselor because everybody used to come up to me and tell me all their problems. And I was always happy to help. I think once you get to the professional uh, level, you can't help everybody. You can help a whole lot of people, mm-hmm. but you can't help everybody. And when you finally run across that person that you can't help, do not take it personal, right? Because it feels like you're not doing something right. It feels like you're not competent. It feels like you're not adequate in your profession when you really are. But you can't help everybody. And I also think the hardest thing about being a counselor is taking a lot of work home with you. I think you have to do a really good job of making sure that the problems that you hear, they definitely take a toll on you, but do the best that you possibly can to leave it at work, leave it at the office. And also, I think the best piece of advice someone gave me is get your own therapist as a therapist. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. And so, your fifth year student, fifth year doctoral student, mm-hmm. doctoral candidate, what do you see yourself doing, you know, with that degree once you finally get it? Yeah, that's, a, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. There's so many things that I want to do, there's so many things that I can, can do, do with yeah. this degree. Um, I think to start out, I would love to work in a college athletic department and strictly just work with the athletes on mental health and wellness and kind of 
implementing different programs for the athletes and the staff. Um, I would love to work in a professional organization, being a part of the wellness programming that they have within the organization for staff members and athletes. Um, I think really though the goal one day, I have a couple goals. One goal is to actually be in the front office of a professional organization and be a part of their mental health initiatives and helping shape what that looks like for each organization within the within that league or kind of shaping what that looks like, how do we want to implement this for each team, what do we need them to do, how do we hold our own little summits to make sure we're spreading what we want to spread. So I think that's, that's a dream uh, job for me as one. And then two, um, so I think this is something I've always wanted to do since I was pretty young. And the reason why, well, one of the reasons why I started working at Current Wellness, but I want to open a space very similar to Current Wellness, right? But I want to have multiple basketball courts. I want to have multiple turf fields. I want to have a track. I want to have a cafeteria in there. And I want to have plenty of office space to be able to make sure that we are able to take care of not just athletes, but anybody that comes through on a holistic kind of lens to be able to really meet any of the needs that they have. And the goal is to hire my mom so she can still do something that she wants to do and see yeah. clients and you know do something very, <laughs> very chill. And then I'm sure hire other members of my family, but for sure be able to hire her because this is what she does. Yeah. And to be able to work with my mom, I think would be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So that's definitely the other goal. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. My mom talks about it too, because I'm you know, i interested in psychology, uh -huh. specifically the sport and talk about opening my own private practice one day. And she says she wants to come and be my receptionist. Exactly. So yes. just that feeling of working with mom. That's a, that's exactly. a cool My dad thing. always says that too. He's like, oh, what do you need me to do? Yeah. I was like, you can do whatever you want. To do. You can just be the guy that comes in, yeah. says what's up to everybody because he's yeah. really good at that. Yeah, and we'll pay him for that. So, okay, man. Well, listen. Once again, we thank you for coming on the show. This has been an awesome conversation. And before we let you go, we got to throw some top takes at you. I'm ready. So, I'm ready. Uh, the design of this is to try not to think about them too much. Got you. So I got to right. answer with a certain amount of time, or within a certain amount of time. Best you can. I got you. All Best right. you can. All right. Um, what are some things you do now to keep your competitive edge? Uh, so I still play basketball a lot and mm -hmm. golf because you can never beat a golf ball apparently. Okay, you play at NC State? Um, so I play basketball at NC State a lot and then golf, I just go around the triangle area okay. wherever I can get on. Alright, you're stuck on an island cool. with three sport-related films. And I'm going to answer this one too, but um, shows and movies, okay. right? What, are, what three are you stuck with? Uh, remember the Titans. Gotta have some sort of history type thing there, just so I remember that. I'm gonna have to go loving basketball because that's my that's my movie right there. And he said show or movie. So show or movie. I need a comedy to make sure I can laugh. And it's either gonna be Ted Lasso because I just got into that and it's fantastic, or Semi Pro. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll All right, I'm gonna go with uh, the Last Dance. I'm going with um, Friday Night Lights. Um, and then finally, I'll take um, this movie. It's called Rebound with Martin. Ah, yes. Rebound, yeah. Great movie. I like Rebound. I haven't seen it in a while, but it, I like that one, so yes. I'll take that one. Um, car, plane, or train, and why? Plane because it's the fastest, and I would love to just sit there and look at the sky. I don't know what it is, but airports excite me. I like seeing people go and come yeah. off of planes. Some of them, you know, they just seem excited. They're trying something new. Some of them are there for unfortunate circumstances. It just depends, but I like, I like the busyness of airports. Yeah. So I would agree yeah, with that. I like that. Finally, what is one hidden talent you have 
that very few people know about. Hidden talent. I like to think that I find really good music that not too many people know about. Okay. Yeah, so that might oh, be an artist that kind of yeah. go under, you know, the yeah, radar okay. or just like, it sounds like, hey, I want this specific type of vibe at a party or a gathering. Mm -hmm. I usually have a playlist for it. That's a good one. Uh, That's a good one. Well, once again, thank you for coming on the show. This is BJ Durham. Wish him the best of luck as he finishes his degree, his doctoral degree in counseling and counselor education. We thank you. We thank all of you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and uh, see you next time. TRIO Student Support Services Program and Student Support Services STEM are federally funded college retention and completion programs. These programs focus on academic, personal, and career support for under-resourced undergraduate students. At TRIO SSS and SSS STEM, our mission is helping our students to reach their goals. We are currently accepting new students to our program. Apply today. Go to www.ncsu.edu to learn more about student support services at NC State.